The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. I'm going solo today as far as the co-host duties. Um, a shout out to my my co-host Stephen Wagner. His, his mom's not doing well, and so he's not with us this morning. So our thoughts and prayers go out to Stephen and his family. But I'm delighted that I'm joined today by Dr. David Auerbuck. Dr. Dr. Auerbuck is a practitioner with the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Center. We're not going to hold it against him that he's originally a Canadian. He got his law, his law I'm about to say law degree. He got his medical degrees from the University of Toronto and is an otolaryngologist. I can't even say it. David, what is it that you are? Ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Otolaryngologist. Gologist. Very good, Mitch. See, it's, you almost have to get treatment from you after saying what you are. That's why we do what we do. <laughs> anyway, uh, but what we thought we'd do is take a little break from our weekly, it seems like monthly, seems like almost a year's discussions of legal issues that have been generated by Washington and, and talk about another issue that has national implication, but it's, but it's not one that many of us think about as much as far as a legal issue, and it talks about health policy and health insurance. It's certainly been in the news over the past weeks in the discussion about the Affordable Care Act and a possible replacement, but today I don't want to talk about the law as much as I want to talk about the policies and how it affects our individual health care. So before we get into that, uh, David, tell us a little about your background and your practice. Sure. Well, first, Mitch, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's a delight sitting here chatting with you. Um, I'm an ear, nose, throat surgeon, moved here, uh, as, as you mentioned, from Canada, uh, trained there, and did some of my training at UCLA, where I met my, my wife-to-be. Uh, and she's from California, loved Canada, but didn't like the weather. So uh, I can't imagine that a Californian that maybe <laughs> thought it was a little cold and and just, rainy and just a little cold. So we moved from from LA, uh, moved to Monterey, which she thinks is a bit cold. I find very warm and exotic, <laughs> and uh, we found a compromise. And here we are. We've been here just over twenty years. Uh, both she's a physician as well, practicing pediatrician. Um, have three kids, and so I'm in a large group practice. Uh, seven other ENT surgeons. Uh, we cover both Monterey and Salinas area. Um, and a number of years ago, I got involved with a local surgery center, the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Center, that has uh, really increased in its volume and its scope for over the past 
15 years significantly to the point that it's a, a major player in healthcare in the Monterey County. So tell us a little difference about the difference between a surgery center and a hospital. I would assume that, and I think my, my guess is most people would assume that if, if we need surgery, you go to a hospital. So how is, how is it that we would go to a surgery center? This is a standalone center, I presume? Correct. These are standalone centers separate from uh, uh, both physically and often uh, financially, uh, not uh, always, but uh, separate physically from uh, local hospitals. So you're right. Years ago, people needed surgery and they went to the hospital for whatever it was, whether it was getting your tonsils out, your gallbladder out, and... Around the early mid-70s, uh, two, uh, I guess, physicians with a bit of foresight in Arizona said, why don't we have our own, you know, for certain procedures that are fairly simple, we can open up a little center and start doing procedures there. And that was really the first one back in mid, mid-70s mid in Arizona. Since that time, it slowly increased as some regulations came in to help them and to guide them. And now there are thousands across the country, over, I think, about 750 to 800 in California alone. And these are centers that allow patients to come in, have various procedures done uh, with some guidelines from CMS, the Center for Medical for Medicare Services, uh, who oversee them uh, and have these services and can be held overnight. You can't, unlike a hospital where you can be admitted for many days, the surgery center, you either have same-day procedures or you can leave, uh, stay overnight, leave the next morning. If you look at maybe 30 years ago, probably of operations that were done nationwide, 80 to 85% were done in a hospital and only 10 or 15% were done as an outpatient basis, meaning patients would go home the next day. Because of advances in technology, advances in anesthesia, advances in post-operative care, all of a sudden, patients could be sent home earlier. An example is, say, a simple tonsillectomy. Well, when I was a kid, you had your tonsils. You were in the hospital for three, four days, sometimes even longer, and that was just the norm. Nowadays, we, we send the vast majority of patients home the same day. I would think some people worry that there's a that hospitals are big for a reason, that mm-hmm. there must be all of these magical machines and things that are in the background that you have to have if something goes wrong. Do, I, I would guess that some people question you that in a standalone surgery center, do you have all of those types of things necessary? Because for most of us, just the idea of surgery is terrifying. And you're right. It is terrifying. I think that uh, what's happened is both with the guidelines, national state guidelines, these places are extremely safe um, in terms of there's not much that we can't do at a surgery center in an emergency situation that you really couldn't do at a hospital. So things are set up that way. Um, so back to that 80-20s, so 30 years ago, that many were done outside the hospital. Now it's reversed. Of nationwide surgical procedures, 80% are done on an outpatient basis, and only 20% are done in hospitals. So there's been a huge shift, something that you would call almost like a disruptive innovation type scenario, uh, where this new, this new kid on the block has changed things. But again, because of uh, care, uh, because of the post-operative care, because of new changes in anesthesia, new techniques of surgery, for instance, a gallbladder is another example. Years ago, they used to make a large incision in your abdomen. You'd be in pain and be uncomfortable for, you'd be in the hospital for four to seven days usually. And now they do it laparoscopically, make a couple of small incisions, put the telescopes in, take out your gallbladder. You're home, you know, five to 10 hours later. That's amazing. Is this something that's uniquely American or are surgery centers found across the country? Because a lot of our listeners on the voiceamerica.com business channel are in other countries listening. So is this something they would see in their country as well? Yes, you would. Um, Now, a lot of these aren't, for instance, in the States. uh, These centers are usually privately owned. 
either by physicians, by corporations, or in our case, the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Center is co-owned with the local physicians and two hospitals, uh, Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula, CHOMP, and Salinas Valley Medical uh, Memorial Hospital. So there's a, there are different ways this can be managed. In other healthcare scenarios, uh, Northern Europe and Canada, you can't have private ownership, uh, everything state-owned because it's a national health service. So they do have surgery centers, but related to the hospital, but still the trend of people having surgery as an outpatient basis, the examples I gave both with a tonsillectomy or a cholecystectomy, which is a fancy word for getting your gallbladder out, <laughs> those are uh, those trends are present in Northern Europe and Canada and other industrialized countries where, where you have patients just going home the same day. So that teaching hospital may have a wing that's that's uh, or a separate building that has an outpatient center where patients can go home the same day. I'm sure everybody wonders, can you, does insurance cover you the same in an, a surgery center as it would in a hospital? Yes. Well, anybody who has surgery usually is pre-authorized by the surgeon's office, and the vast majority of cases, I don't think I've ever had one that wasn't allowed, um, the insurance covers it. In fact, they often like it because it's much less expensive. Uh, they can, surgery centers can afford to do it uh, with, with less overhead. Why? They don't have the overhead that hospitals do in terms of running an emergency department that's 24-7, running an ICU that's 24-7. So these are things that, that hospital, sometimes they can be a huge money sink for the hospital uh, in terms of cost types of patients that come in, whereas the surgery center is doesn't have to doesn't have that part of overhead. So costs are generally significantly cheaper, which not the insurance companies like. would like. Oh, they love it. They, <laughs> insurance companies love it, and patients, uh, you know, are are, uh, are attracted to that. Well, let's talk a little about insurance uh, because that's been in the news recently. Uh, you've been practicing what, a couple decades as a doctor. Well, sounds like a lot, but you're you're, <laughs> about, you're about right. <laughs> so. Uh, we never really thought much about health insurance, I think, when I was a kid. I Actually, I was, I was thinking about getting ready for the show. I'm from a small town in Texas. I remember being sick, and I know you're going to laugh because this is like the dark ages. The doctor came to the house. He literally, and we didn't live in town. He drove out, came to the house. I'm laying in my bed. He brought whatever was necessary right. and uh, took care of me and drove off. Uh, I never thought about whether... You know, how would insurance pay for that or not? But it, from a doctor's standpoint, uh, what changes do you see that our discussion about insurance policy and who's covered and who isn't, what, if any, changes have you seen in how people are approaching their personal health care? Well, it's a great question. I know question. it's a huge it's question. It's very complicated. No, no, I'll, try, I'll try and divide that up into a few parts of the answers. First of all, let's talk about patients who are insured. Well, in general, people who are insured, they um, patients have become much more savvy or much more fearful or a combination thereof of their costs, uh, the costs involved, because healthcare ex- uh, costs have increased significantly. Um, and then what they are responsible for in terms of out-of-pocket costs, what their deductibles are, these are things that when I started practicing, most patients just weren't even aware of or they figured, oh, somewhere it'll, it'll, be, it'll work out, not a big deal. But because of the skyrocketing health care costs, I'd say that the number one thing I've noticed in the past five, ten years is patients more savvy and asking questions and how much it's going to cost and delaying, you know, making decisions saying, I'm not going to have this procedure done. Do I really need this CAT scan? Simply because, not because of fear of radiation or fear of tests, but out-of-pocket expenses. So the let's, let me jump a little out of order. I told you a couple of questions I was going to ask, but 
I know you're Canadian. Your dad's a doctor in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a brother who's a doctor here, your medical family. Uh, most of us hear this idea of a single-payer system. And I want to start a little talking about this, and we'll come back after our first break because I'm sure we won't finish it. But most of us don't really even know what that means. So Canada has a single-payer system, Correct. right? So you grew up with that. Your dad practiced his whole career mm-hmm. there. Uh, tell, tell us what just basically, what is the difference between a single-payer system that you experience in Canada and what you've experienced as a practicing doctor and you know parent and user right. of the services here in the United States? Well, there's t- uh, different types of single-payer systems or different sort of hybrids. I guess the, the highlight, the main difference is that think of every most patients or uh, most people are familiar with what Medicare is. It's right. a, sort of a coverage for over 65 or some patients with chronic disabilities, but generally for patients who are people who are population over 65. Imagine that expanded to the whole population, that everyone's covered by a government policy and... Uh, You're just uh, automatically and, covered. And automatically covered. Now, there are issues... With Medicare, there are different types of Medicare, different classes. Some people have certain deductibles, which doesn't really uh, play into a single-payer system, say something like Canada. But imagine that everyone has health insurance from from cradle to grave type of thing. Um, makes it very easy for everybody. Uh, now, there are other issues uh, with health. There are t- some types of hybrids. For example, in England, they have a national health service, but you're, there's a two-tier system. So everyone's covered. But if you want a little bit extra, if you want a private room instead of a shared room, if you want to move to the front of the line, if you want your surgery a little sooner as opposed to the long wait, you can pay a little extra. In countries like Canada, that's not allowed. Everyone gets the same. You can't sort of uh, push the queue. You can't stand in front right. of somebody. You have to wait your turn in line. You can't get that extra fancy little thing. So now there's other non-covered services such as you want a facelift, you want your eyes done or nose done. The drop. elective surgeries, the, as we would think of um, that. Yeah, well, no, no, not elective. That would be more of a of a cosmetic. Okay, cosmetic. cosmetic. Okay. Yeah, and and those types of procedures, that's not under the cover, the umbrella of being covered. Now, Oregon tried this a year, a number of years ago, and they had a an element in the. I'm not quite sure of their model, but they have a coverage for their state where they say we're going to cover our budget allows us to cover the first couple of hundred procedures, but after that, those things become non-essential services. And we won't cover those. If you want those, you have to pay out of your own pocket. So that's, again, those are sort of hybrid models. In terms of pluses and minuses, well, in the Canadian system, everyone's covered. It's great. You, if for emergency issues, if you have to show up at the emergency department, well, you show up and you're taken care of. On the other hand, for elective services, because if you need, a say, a hip replacement, you may wait 6 to 12 to 18 months to have that done. Also an issue is that everybody in that system has to have a primary care physician. You are assigned to one in your area. So you, you don't get to pick your private doctor. You're assigned to a regional you doctor. Pro- you could probably pick within a group of people, but it's almost as if it's in, in, within your catchment area. On the other hand, if you want to see, you've sprained your ankle, you want to see an orthopedic surgeon, you can't see one unless you're referred by your primary doctor. You have to see them first. And then they have to shunt you on. So those were some of the complaints that the early HMOs had here in the United States. Correct. Where you had to be uh, funneled through a primary doctor. Well, we're about to take our first break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking today about the intersection of, of law and, and health care policy. I'm talking with Dr. David Auerbuck of the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers. When we come back, we're going to talk more about 
healthcare, and legal policy. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitchell Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. My guest today is Dr. David Auerbach, and we're talking about health care, insurance, healthcare policy, insurance policies. And just before the break, we were talking with David about the difference between a single-payer system and and an insurance-based system. That's been part of the conversation here in the United States. So, David, we talked about how a single-payer system works and that there actually could be several different varieties of them. But but that's not what we have here if you're not in, in medic, in, I guess, Medicaid. 
uh, or Medicare, Medicare, right. Medicare right. Uh, we're, most of us are going to be covered by private insurance. So let's talk a little about private insurance. And as, again, as a doctor, how have you seen the aspects of insurance drive individual choices about health care and, and getting, uh, getting needed uh, services? Yeah, well, first of all, if you just look at the general population in terms of who's insured and who's not insured, what type of insurance, um, it's really amazing for those who are against a single-payer system. We may talk a bit more about that in the few, uh, over the next half hour or so. Um, as the significant amount or significant number of the American population is already covered that way, if you look at who federal programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. add-in TRICARE, which is for the uh, armed forces, uh, active duty, as well as veterans, covered, covered the veterans, you're up to 45, sometimes 50% of the population. Well, that's you're almost covering half your population with a federally funded program. So so for, so, for about half of the country, we have a single payer system. You sort of do already, yeah. even though people say we don't want one. Well, it's sort of there for a significant number. Then you have probably uh, numbers have changed because of ACA, which I know we'll touch on. Um, the uninsured has gone down from maybe 17, 18% to, I think they're saying 10 or 12%, which was maybe 41 million down to about 28 million now, maybe less. So then you're left with, uh, with of the population, you know, 40% or so that are insured, 45 to 50%, uh, sorry, sorry, 35 to 40% that have single parent insurance or some, some type of insurance through their employers or private insurance. Now those patients, back to your question, um, they, as mentioned, they are much more savvy in terms of what their, what costs are, um, and and this is not just what their deductible is, but when you have an insurance plan, patients will come in and they understand now that it's not just one deductible for everything. It may be a deductible for a portion, portion that may be done in the hospital or, or, or in a surgery center for an operation. Maybe some separate deductible for um, medications, for drug plan. Maybe another part of the deductible that's assigned for different family members. Maybe another one that's assigned for medical devices. If someone needs a hearing aid, if someone needs crutches, if someone needs some type of a CPAP machine for, for sleep apnea. So these are all, all of a sudden they're eating away. There's different choices. It's not one lump sum. And in fact, I remember when we recently redid our insurance, you know, some of the very expensive procedures may be a percent of. Mm-hmm. So our deductible is, you know, we, we pay Twenty percent of the procedure, whatever it is, and the insurance covers eighty percent. So we don't even know what that dollar amount is. You're right. I mean, so when if I show up at your surgery center, I'm going to be a little more particular as to what the costs are, because I'm not just paying a fixed amount; I'm paying a percent of it. Correct. And so they may have patients will have a significant, sometimes a significant deductible, anywhere from three to five to seven thousand or more until they reach that 80-20% threshold. So there can be a fair bit of coin that they have to pay for these services. So yes, they're covered, but it can be you know, pretty significant. So I'd say patients being savvy, investigating, um, a fair number of people in our office are always helping patients to find, find out what their share of cost is. We don't want someone to choose, especially if it's elective surgery, you know, something that needs to be done, but at, at an appropriate time, that we don't want them to be surprised that what's going on... The, if you look at the the, the, the federal um, or the the, um, the federal board states that over fifty percent of patients or over fifty percent of people that are called to um, collection agencies nationwide, over fifty percent is because of medical issues. I'm not talking about bankruptcies or foreclosures. I'm talking right. about just people that are, that are 
called to... The medical costs have driven them into yeah. uh, financial straits. Collection agencies get that. I, I can tell you we've worked locally in the area of the homeless, mm-hmm. and it's it's amazing the large percentage of individuals who are homeless. If you take out mental health, mm-hmm. uh, the, those that end up homeless because of a catastrophic medical event in their life, mm-hmm. if theirs or family members that literally just drained everything, they mortgaged the house, then they sold the house, and before they know it, they have nothing left trying to pay off those medical costs. There's a bit of a misunderstanding in society. People talk about the, the large numbers of uninsured people, and they think of people who just can't uh, can't afford it or fall between the cracks, don't want to. There's a significant number, I'd say, of the patients nationwide statistics have shown, this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, presently maybe, as I said, about 28 million nationwide. 46% of them have chosen not to be insured because they can't afford it. Because even with the subsidies, even with ACA, they think it would be too expensive. So they're taking a chance saying, I can't afford X dollars a month. And a lot of these people are self-employed. They're working. They're working blue-collar, middle-class people, maybe you know, self-employed, and they're saying, I can't afford the X hundred dollars a month, and I'm 35-year-old, I'm a healthy guy, I'm going to take a chance. Well, they get into it's a, a car accident, and it's That's a gamble. Right. And so... I can understand why they're taking that gamble, but on the other hand, it can be an extremely expensive one. It's an interesting. It's interesting you should frame it that way. Uh, I have a 25-year-old son, and he was at a new company, and so there was a brief period of time that he just wasn't getting his act together, as as even adult children sometimes <laughs> do. <laughs> And he had access to insurance through the company, but there were forms he had to fill out, and he just wasn't getting it tied down. And, you know, of course, 25-year-olds believe that they're bulletproof. They're of course. Superman. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said to him, the, let me frame it a little differently. And this is the problem having a father as, as a lawyer uh, <laughs> or a lawyer as a father. Uh, I said, if something catastrophic, completely unrelated, God forbid, happened to you and you have no insurance, who do you think is going to pay for that? And I said, if it was truly catastrophic, a million-dollar expense well, of course, we would sell the house, sell the cars, we would do whatever it took. But you could actually bankrupt us in one unfortunate incident because you don't have insurance and you were already off our policy. Although now, right. up to 26, he could be eligible. But at the time, he was off because he was working. So, I mean, just even there, he just didn't think about it that way. Right, and people fall through the cracks, and these things, you know, statistically, these things happen to people, and and. and you know, human nature is, it's not going to happen to me when I jaywalk. It's not going right. to happen to me when I take this chance. But unfortunately, it happens to people, and it can be catastrophic. I'll tell you the other side that, that surprised me is, as you know, I sit on the board of, a, of the safety net hospital for our county. And you mentioned the Affordable Care Act and the rate of people who are uninsured. We saw such a dramatic change in the number of people who came through the emergency room at our county hospital who had insurance for the first time ever through the ACA. And one of the things I like to to stimulate conversation with when individuals say, why should my taxes be paying for somebody else's supplemental insurance? Why through the ACA should I have to pay a certain amount for those people to be insured? And what I remind them is that you are paying for those individuals as a citizen taxpayer in the community because when somebody walks in uninsured to a county hospital, they don't get turned away. They get whatever services they are needed and 
our taxes pay for it. So we're paying one way or the other. Exactly. And I think that's an important point when patients, when, sorry, when po- pe- people in the population say they don't want to pay for that. Why am I subsidizing somebody else? Because you're going to pay for it in the long run. You're going to pay for it if they show up in the emergency department. Or you're also going to pay the fact that the, if they don't have a physician and they don't seek medical care, whatever problem they may, they, they should be seeing somebody for, they don't. And they wait longer and longer. Then they present when it's advanced. Well, you're paying for that complication. You're complaining of what was an acute thing that could have been managed now turns into a chronic illness that could have been dealt with. So the overall cost is even more. Well, that's exactly what we do see. You know, what could have been treated as the flu now becomes pneumonia. Right, and they're and, hospitalized and they're in the exactly. ICU. And these are so these costs all add up when you look across the board. So the idea of of subsidizing somebody, well, that's our responsibility, and you want to do that. If you if you don't want to do it for ethical reasons, believe me, it's it's also going to help you in the you know from a pocketbook standpoint. But there's there's many reasons many reasons why you should do that. So let's talk a little uh, a different angle. Let's change tact on public policy. Mm-hmm. And and I know you're not a, a a policy expert, but you know over the course of my life, I've watched the government issue a number of policies. My my parents smoke cigarettes when I was young. I remember cigarettes being on the seat of the car, by the telephone at the house, on the counter in the kitchen. Right. I mean, my parents both smoked. The Surgeon General came out with the warning, and my parents were two of the individuals who considered those facts and quit smoking. So that would have been, they quit smoking 40 some odd years ago. Uh, so in that case, a government warning helped. Uh, currently in California, we're looking at putting warnings on things such as sugary drinks because of the concern about diabetes in children. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been discussion of requiring all restaurants to post calorie counts and things like that on menus. All right. So as a doctor over much of that same period of time, wh- what have you seen? And, and do you think these types of what some people would consider government intervention in labeling and warnings does it work? Is it the way to go about public health changes? Well, I think it's frustrating as a physician to see these things not work as well as you'd like them to. It's general. I think it's part of human nature to ignore a lot of these things and think it's going to happen to somebody else, number one. And number two, when you have the effect of whatever whatever that habit is, whether it's smoking, whether it's imbibing you know, uh, high fructose corn syrup on a regular basis through you know, uh, sugar uh, sugar content of, so, of soft drinks, and they don't see the immediate result of something that's, that's going to happen if over five or ten or thirty years, and they don't see the immediate results. It's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to somebody else. Do I think those warnings are necessary? I think they are. I think on cigarette packages you have to have that. How much does it help? I again, I don't have statistics, but. I'd say it does help some people, but I think we're seeing smoking in, increase over time. One of the problems with smoking is that people don't believe this, and they, they when they hear me say this, or they hear it more through my wife, who's a pediatrician, um, they sort of laugh, but understand that this is true, that smoking is a pediatric disease. And by that, I mean that the vast majority of people who smoke started smoking when they were teenagers. Mm, interesting. If you don't, statistics show, if you don't start smoking by the time you're 20, the odds are you're not going to start. So 95% of adults who are smoking started as a teenager. So if you can stop, if you can educate them, if you can stop the smoking, if you can 
get a sort of or lifestyle. Limit, in this case, for or limit exposure. Uh, limit the exposure, limit the advertising, as they've restricted to exactly. the government uh, regulations on when and where and how you can advertise yeah. towards younger populations. Remember, years ago, there was a big stink by the American Academy of Pediatrics about this, uh, I think it was Camel cigarettes. They had that Joe Camel. Joe Camel or Joe Cool. Joe Camel. Joe Camel had the sunglasses, well, right? That, that wasn't advertising to 30-year-olds. That was advertising to 13- and 15-year-olds who thought that that was the coolest thing. And that those were the people who were picking up the cigarettes and they were smoking. So it definitely is a pediatric disease. So warnings do help, but unfortunately, certain warnings over a period of time, you become immune to them. You don't see them. You choose not to see them. Um, obesity... 68% of the adult population, 68, two-thirds of the adult population are obese in the United yeah. States. I want to save that topic for after okay. this next break because I do want to talk <laughs> about some of those, uh, some of the diseases that are affecting our, our large populations and, and talk about what do we do and what, what do you do as a doctor uh, to address some of those things. Uh, and and the, the struggle I think we all have is is that in this era of where we hear discussions of, you know, big government is bad, and we don't want government intrusion into our life, and we absolutely don't want government intrusion into our health care decisions, and yet what we're going to see is we're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that end up being spent on these type of health care issues that are a national issue. So, so I think there's this ongoing tension of... How do we set policy? Uh, which part should be applied through the law? Which part should be applied through private decisions? And then when we come back, I want to talk to you about what, what role do you think the doctors should be playing? Because I, I must admit, one of the things I do remember as that child with the doctor mm-hmm. coming to visit the house was, he smoked. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. He, he smoked because my parents smoked at the house and so did the doctor. So you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick. I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. David Auerbuck. And we're talking about healthcare policy and the intersection between law and healthcare policy. Don't go away. We'll be back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. 
The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, the President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. And my guest today is Dr. David Auerbach of the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers. So, David, we've been kind of wide-ranging here. We've talked about single-payer versus individual insurance. We've talked about public health issues uh, and whether government policy drives those decisions and changes behavior. Uh, Let's talk a little about the, just the kind of the elephant in the room, which is the cost in the United States of medical coverage and, and medical expenditures. I, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I saw from some of my preparation that we're talking in the United States about spending, you know, two to three trillion, I mean, trillion with a T dollars on healthcare per year. It's, it's a huge part of our, uh, gross spending in the United States. So even changing that behavior a little bit could free up money to spend on other things. Uh, we, we need infrastructure, you know, we need defense, we need all of these other things, but we're spending. How much of that could be changed by personal behavior? I think a significant amount. I mean, when you look at savings, there's many, there's, there's many avenues you can look at in terms of manifesting savings. One of them is currently current issues that you're, uh, that you're dealing with, the present expenses on doing a procedure on a patient, the cost of medications. But the second one, the overreaching, is where health care expenditures are going to be. You mentioned the figure $2.4 trillion, which is supposed to be by 2030, is supposed to be over $4 trillion. Wow. Over $4 trillion. So in terms of percentage of the, of the budget, that's going from, I think, 17%. It's going to go up to over 30 so the United States is the number one healthcare in terms of GDP, percents of GDP, 17% in the world. 70% of the GDP is spent on healthcare, number one in the world. And you look at the average of industrial countries that offer national healthcare services, European Union, the average is about 10.2%. Uh, you look at Canada, Canada is 9.5%. Also, it can be done in a much more cost-controlled way. 
So these prices are, pardon the, you know, they're, they're going to kill us over the long run, <laughs> one, one way or the other. And it's just, it's just not. And you can't you know, extract that at your surgery center. Exactly, <laughs> you can't. And so the term that they talk about, you know, how sustainable or unsustainable. This is unsustainable. Growth like this is is absolutely unsustainable to to society, to patients, to uh, to the government, to to spending of this nature. So, so we're talking about two parts of this. So right. the first part you talked about was behavior on things such Correct. as like uh, diabetes and heart disease, hypertension. I mean, it, it strikes me that. Many of these things are not genetically predestined, right? right? These are these are lifestyle and behavior factors, right? And and again, there may be some propensity for patients who have high lipid issues or hypertension, but there's no question that lifestyle will exacerbate it significantly. I mentioned earlier the obesity, you know, well over fifty percent to the sixty percent of the population obesity. That's why type two diabetes or non-insulin dependent diabetes has increased markedly. Number of patients on various oral medications, on diet controlled ways of controlling sugar. Uh, everybody, I see the number of patients who are on metformin, which is a well-known medication used for oral control of blood sugar. Fifteen years ago, it was a small percentage of my population. Now it seems that every second person over the age of forty is on metformin, or or they're pre-diabetic. And again, this is because of lifestyle choices that they've made or they haven't made in terms of controlling their weight, controlling you know diet. And these are things that we can educate patients, and they should be educated. And the amount of time and money that's spent now on that can be significant savings over years. Because when we look at where that $2.4 trillion is going to over $4 trillion, that's a huge part of it. Because we're talking about people who are going to end up with chronic diseases. They're going to end up hospitalized, going to have significant amount of health care expenditure in there you know, as they get older for man- managing and dealing with these uh, the side effects and the complications of these chronic diseases that can have a huge component of being lifestyle-based. And I think a lot of us don't realize that, for example, someone who comes into the hospital, again, I'll, I'll reference what I've, I've seen in a county hospital, uh, they come in for one type of treatment, but because they're diabetic, it, it increases the complexity or the risk of things going wrong or having a bad outcome exponentially. And so it's not just the treatment of the diabetes. It's that if almost anything else they need, surgery or treatment, uh, other types of health conditions, it's just exacerbated and the costs go up and the risk of them becoming uh, debilitated and unable to go back to the workforce goes way up. Oh, there's no question. We call these in the surgical area of medicine, we call them comorbidities, other, other factors that will affect the main condition why they're in. They won't heal well. They may have an acute uh, appendicitis, but if they're diabetic, if they're obese, they have hypertension, well, they may not heal well. They may end up with a complication infection, which leads to longer hospitalization, which leads to other, other issues. But those things may not have happened had their comorbidities or secondary lifestyle issues, had they been controlled prior to that. So Stephen's not here to balance my you know, political leanings on things. <laughs> but I, mean, I think what we're saying here is you know, we started the show talking about insurance right. and whether national policy related to insurance can drive uh, health care costs and uh, hopefully down and behavior down, but but we see things like hypertension and diabetes that this has nothing to do with insurance. This has to do with personal choices, family choices, cultural choices in the individual families that mm-hmm. we could drive those costs down dramatically, and we don't need healthcare policy to change at all for that. No, you need you need more of a uh, of a mindset of the of the 
of the collective to, to sound, I don't mean to sound so philosophical here, but you're right. But now that's one arm. There are many ways to, as they call, bend the cost curve. That's one way. That's a, in the long term, looking over the next generation, how to affect that. Teaching your kids not to smoke, teaching your kids, you know, proper diet, um, combating obesity. Exercise. These are things, exercise. And these are things that over, you know, over a long term, over this arc of time, we're going to notice, hopefully, changes in, in the healthcare. But there's other short-term things in terms of controlling costs as well. So, so let's many talk ways a little about that because I want to circle back around to where we started. I know you, you made the decision to start a surgery center, but isn't that part of uh, the individual consumer of medical care services can also have a little more control in their life in making decisions? Well, as, the, as insurance companies, policy wonks will all say that the, the, the biggest control um, or what controls health care costs the most is this, a pen, a pen. <laughs> we're on by. radio. We had, okay, I had to tell exactly. people what you were holding up. I, I, knew you'd pick up <laughs> I, I knew you'd pick up the cue. But this is a pen used by a physician who writes an order. So whether I'm ordering a CAT scan, whether I'm ordering a test, whether I'm ordering a, medic, a treatment for a medication, whether I'm ordering surgery, all of these things have repercussions. So in terms of trying to control costs and being aware of what a, should I do this test or not? Is this, is this a needed service? Number one. Number two, once that service is ordered, what is the most cost-efficient way of getting it? Which gets back to, say, surgery centers. That's one of the beautiful things that they offer. Not only high-quality care, but you can do it at a fraction of the cost because they don't have the overhead that hospitals do. So, And the third thing is transparency of costs. So that This is a new thing because patients, unfortunately, weren't sort of open to or aware of uh, what costs we would go into this sort of black box wherever they would have surgery, at a surgery center, at uh, at a hospital. What you know, you give a prescription to a patient, they don't know what it costs until you sort of get the bill. But now people are much more savvy. They want to know beforehand. One of the reasons that our surgery center, Monterey Peninsula Surgery Center, we've decided to be transparent. You go to our website and you can see the actual cost. Patients can say, "Oh, this is what it's going to cost to fix my hernia or get my gallbladder out," which we think is important. Patients need to know. What other service can you, uh, you know, you get your car fixed, you buy a TV or anything you'd else. You'd ask about. You'd, you'd ask wanna, and, you, and, you'd, and you'd shop. You'd want now, an estimate, now people, right. now people go online and they cost compare. They say, well, I can get it on Amazon for this. Why would I pay you that? So is this going to happen with healthcare? Possibly it may, but we want people to comparison shop. We want people to know exactly what it costs. So transparency in healthcare is, is a new issue that's coming up. People want to know. Now, you actually went back to get a graduate degree in healthcare management. Yes, so, I did. Yeah. So you're you're attuned to that. But how hard will it be to get doctors in general to to start thinking like you're thinking about the business side of providing individual health? Because that wasn't taught in medical school. It's not. But I think that it's becoming more where it's not. You know, we're past the days of people hanging up singles individually and doing it. First of all, most physicians now are practicing in groups. Most groups are being managed by, you know, a competent business manager and or in affiliation with a hospital. People have to be aware of costs, both in, key, in managing your business, but in what they're offering patients. If you want to attract patients, you have to be competitive. You can't just say, I'm the best, and, you know, patients will want to go there, but they'll want to look at costs. When patients have significantly high deductibles now with whatever insurance they have, even with the ACA, with the number of people being covered, a lot of these people who are covered still have significant deductibles. So patients all through the spectrum, whether it's with uh, uh, covered by the ACA, private insurance, they want to know prices. They want to know what their share of costs is going to be. So most of us, I think, 
are afraid to challenge our doctor on treatment recommendations. So you've you've said yes, we can have transparency. So I get a list, and here are the things, here are the parts you should have repaired, and you know three body parts and a couple paint jobs. So I've got it. I've got my pricing, but I don't. A lot of people are going to things like Med, uh, what is it called MedMD, mm-hmm. and they go online and they're self-diagnosing and self-challenging. I mean that. I can see the good part of that, but as a doctor, that must also be very challenging. When somebody walks in and says, well, I know Dr. Arbuck, you say I need this, 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 but I was just researching it on Google, and it looks like I could go do this. Well, you're right. In in one sense, I didn't have that 10, 15 years ago when I practiced, and nowadays I have patients walk in literally with a sheaf of papers mm-hmm. saying, okay, this is my research. <laughs> this is what I think is going on. This is what I'd like you to do. And... Sometimes I can be a bit frustrated thinking, oh my gosh, you know, do I do that with my, wherever I go to my dentist, wherever I go to, <laughs> but on the other hand, I look at that and I think this is a time, this is a great teaching point. And, and, and clearly this, it's, it, I, I appreciate this because it shows that the patient is invested in their own health, which is number one, I want them to be. And I can use it as a teaching moment to say, well, let's look at what you have. Um, sometimes the appointments are longer, but that's, that's life. I'm happy to go through the stuff with them and then point out. I may learn something. Often I'm teaching them and say, well, really, this is for a different type of patient or this is a different type of procedure. And they say, oh, well, thanks for explaining that to me. And we can hone in on what the problem is, what needs to be done. So to me, yes, it, 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 on the surface, it can seem frustrating, but I actually appreciate patients like that because they, it shows that they're invested. They want to know whether it's a procedure, whether it's a cost related, whether it's how they recover from it. These are all aspects that, again, getting back to the consumer which it's hard for me still to think of my patients as a consumer, but they're consuming a healthcare you know, issue. But I want them to be involved. I want them to be engaged. And that gives for the best doctor-patient relationship to have that. You know, they're buying it. They want to get better. An informed consumer exactly. is the best. So we only have about a minute left, but I, I do want to just toss in one last question. Telemedicine and distance ed medicine. Uh, I know we're just we're seeing it in a few things. Uh, do you think that's a... And we'll probably come back and do that as an individual show. I, I would love but is, to. But is that something you think we're going to see oh, continue to expand? I, I, I think you see a lot of it. It's happening already in certain aspects, in certain areas of medicine. And it makes it more, um, some aspects or some specialties of medicine are more sort of set up for that. Radiology, pathology, even dermatology, where you can look at something specific and make a diagnosis more easily. A little bit harder when you have to interact with the medicine. And there's really two main telemedicine ways. There's the interactive one or there's the... There's a, a sort of a separate, you're given a case, you look at it, and then you get back to the patient. So I can see with dermatology, you know, hold the camera up yeah. to the skin and I can look at it. Uh, removing my the gallbladder, worst. I might actually <laughs> want to come into your surgery center and have that done there. Exactly. Mitch, hold the, the fork and the knife a little closer to the left, and then uh, let me tell you where to poke. Well, you, <laughs> thank you for coming on our show. We definitely will come back and address these issues again. You've been listening to... Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. My guest today has been Dr. David Auerbuck of the Monterey Peninsula Surgery Center. As we suggest to you every week, number one, you can hear an archive of this program on voiceamerica.com business channel or Wagner and Winnick on the Law. And if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thank you. 
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 